0: My name is Jamie Burgess. I am a member at King's Cross Church. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. My name is Chip. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're brand new, welcome. Um, As Josh said, I hope you fill out a connection card maybe uh, and stop by the welcome desk on your way out. Say hello. We'd love to get you plugged into what it is that the Lord's doing here. Um, If you get to know me a little bit, one of the things that you'd figure out pretty quickly is I don't like waiting. I, I just, I get, can get irritated pretty quickly. Like, um, I went this past week. I go to Harris Teeter almost every day, um, and I went to Harris Teeter. go back to the butcher counter, and there's like two other people already there waiting. I'm not waiting. And so I went all the way down to my little list, all the way down to the freezer section to get what I needed. I'd rather walk and come back and see if, you know, I can get my, what I need from the butcher counter without having to wait. I just would rather be active. Like, there's traffic. I would rather drive for longer and get home later than sit in traffic. I I just, I don't, I don't like to wait. If we make a decision, I want to implement the decision right now. We know what we're going to do. Let's just do it. Why do we have to wait around? I don't, I don't like waiting. And maybe there's a little bit of HDD, ADHD. I can't say that. Maybe there's, you know, I don't know. Maybe there's a little bit of that in there. Maybe there's a lot of it in there. Uh, I think though, that there's a little bit of just human nature in there too, that we kind of like to be, productive. We we like to be in motion. If you went all the way back to the beginning of our study through the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, you see that God created Adam and Eve and and he made them a people to work. He he gave us a job to do and a mission to pursue. He told us to take the raw materials of the earth and to cultivate them and to make them into something beautiful. And when we do that, I, I think to borrow a line from chariots of fire, I think we feel his pleasure. And when we don't do that, Sometimes God will stir up in us a holy discontent and and where we're we're just not doing enough in a good way. And and he'll use that to, to call us into something new or to spur us on personally, spiritually. But sometimes, and that's a good thing, right? But sometimes what happens is we can not get discontent and not get stirred up and we can get really comfortable just being in neutral. We get used to the status quo. We can stop being intentional and we just kind of start to drift along. Or it might be a spiritual drift, kind of away from God and just casually towards the world. It might be vocational drift where you just stop honing your talents and your skills. You stop really honoring the Lord with your time. It might be a relational drift where over time you just start to take your family and friends for granted, start to kind of resent your responsibilities. You start to think about, you know, maybe things would just be better if I was on my own. Maybe it would just be better if I had a fresh start. When that happens, it's almost always in a season of waiting, a season of being in between where you're not quite here, but you're not quite there yet either. You're just kind of drifting, casual, looking around. It's almost always in a season like that. Life is stable. It becomes routine and predictable. You don't feel like you have any big battle to wage or hill to climb or some great goal to pursue. And in that kind of in-between season, you can just kind of benignly neglect life now. You you ever been there This resonate at all? That's kind of where Israel is in the book of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's writing to a people who have come back out of exile and are living back in the city of Jerusalem. And so it's almost certain that he is a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. You might remember that we've studied their books. And so he's living in a city where almost certainly the temple has been restored. You can read about that in Ezra. We are certain that worship has been restored and the sacrifices are being made again. We're almost certain that he's living in a Jerusalem where the walls have been rebuilt. You can read about that in the book of Nehemiah. And so the people that he's preaching to and the people that he's prophesying to, they're not all that different from us as 21st century you know, Westerners living in the American South. Their, their, their culture, it is kind of the air that they're breathing, it isn't all that different than ours. They're active religiously. They're stable economically. They're relatively, secure compared to like their parents and grandparents who were living during these times of great wars. So life hasn't stopped. Things still happen. You know, babies are being born and people are getting sick and losing their jobs. And like life hasn't ground to a halt, but it has become relatively routine and predictable. You can imagine for many of them that maybe they were just kind of waiting On whatever was gonna be next. What's the next big thing that's gonna happen in our life? And in that kind of in between, in that season of waiting, they begin to drift back into these same old patterns of sin and apostasy that the generations before them had struggled with, too. That they just kind of are in neutral, coasting back into old patterns. And so the book of Malachi, if you read it this week in your devotional plan, it almost comes across like a lawsuit. It's God filing charges against his own people. And if you like to take notes, let me just say that we will eventually get to the sermon notes that are in your bulletin where it's really just the last 3 verses of the book that we're going to get to those notes. And when we do eventually get there, what you're going to see is that God is going to tell us how to live in these seasons of in-between. How how to live in these seasons of waiting On what's next. But before we get there, I want to summarize for you the charges that are leveled by God against the people of Jerusalem and Judah. Because I think if we're honest in it, what we're going to see is that there's a whole lot of us in them. There's a whole lot of our culture in their culture. And these charges that God levels against his people are not that far away from what perhaps he might look and think and and level against some of us. And that's why when we get to those last three verses, they're going to be so incredibly important and so encouraging to us because they're going to speak to us as a people who are living in between. And so there are six of these charges or disputes, if you will, that God brings against his people. They're given to us in three related pairs. The first one of those is charge number one and charge number six, and they deal with how it is that the people are are thinking about or how it is that they're regarding God. So Malachi 1, 2 to 5, God says that his people don't really seem to understand the truth about who he is. He says this in the first part of verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And he reminds them in the verses that follow of how he has loved them and how he has made a distinction between them and these pagan nations around them that he has opposed and even some of which he has utterly destroyed. But more than that, for thousands of years, God had proven over and over and over again how he loved his people, how he was dedicated to them, how he was going to exhibit covenant faithfulness towards them. And yet their hearts still question him. They still overlook his goodness. They still take their relationship with him for granted. Their view of God is far too small. And he says, I'm going to correct this. In verse 5, he says, When I do, you shall say, Great is the Lord, beyond the border of just Israel. So I'm I'm going to show you how great I am. You don't understand they kind of have this, what have you done for me lately view of God? Well, how have you loved us? Oh, sure, you brought our parents out of exile, but what's, what, how have you loved me? What have you done for me lately? I mean, often do we not in a crisis, we look to God, and right after the crisis passes, we're very thankful to God. But then at some point when things calm down again, and we begin to feel in control again. The routine of life kicks in again. And our hearts can just kind of drift to a place where we go, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I know God did that back then, but that, that was last year. That that was when I was a kid. What evidence do I have that God loves me now? And if we're not careful, we begin to judge God's glory and his character his worth, based on what he's done for us lately. Well, h- how have you loved me? Let us see what you do for them. In the chapter three, God's going to pair this lack of understanding of His greatness and of His goodness, this reduction of Him. He's going to pair that with a lack of fearing Him. Malachi three thirteen to fifteen. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, so this is how you've spoken against the Lord. You've said, it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in the morning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers do not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. I mean, what's in it for me? What difference does it make how I live I mean, the wicked seem to prosper. I'm looking around, and those people don't, don't live like me, and I've given up every one of their Sunday mornings. You know, they're not being generous. How, how, and they seem to be doing just fine. God didn't seem to be doing anything again. What's in this for me? God says when you take a position like that, that 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 is. That's a heart that doesn't fear the Lord. You don't tremble before him in reverent awe. God's charge against his people is going to say, you know, if you, if you say things like, you know, I tried church for a while, but I don't know. I just don't get anything out of it. I don't get much out of it. He says, you're speaking against me. You're making a charge against the Lord. He says when you look at people who you know are far from God and you're jealous of them of their wealth, of their family, of their position at work, of their influence, of their body or their looks when when you look and you call them blessed and what you mean by that, like what we really mean when we say that is they're blessed and I'm not. God says you're leveling a charge against me. You're speaking harshly against me. You don't fear me. That's the posture of a heart that doesn't fear the Lord. It's a failure to understand His power and His goodness and His covenant faithfulness. It's a failure to fear the Lord in reverent awe over who He is. And God says these are grievous sins. And I would contend that they almost always show up when we're in seasons of in-between. Because we have time to start looking around rather than looking up. Just kind of living day to day, eating, drinking, being merry, just kind of kicking into neutral, cruise through life, no real crisis to speak of, and we just kind of casually, unintentionally drift. We can go from adoring God to just kind of being apathetic, And then we start to accuse, and then eventually we become antagonistic against God. And so God, through Malachi, is going to warn Israel and us, in Malachi 3.18, that indeed he is to be feared, and he's going to say that judgment is coming. And in that day when judgment comes, he says, once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Oh, you're not going to look around in that day and call them blessed, God says. In that day, you're not going to say what was in it for me. He's just this reminder of what's coming. The second pair of charges that that he brings are numbers two and five, and they concern how it is that people think about their own sin, how it is that they approach worship. If you go back to chapter one, God condemns, His people's offering of and the priest's acceptance of half-hearted worship. Malachi 1, 6-8 A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, God says, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? You know, it's okay to give God the leftovers. He's God. He's just happy that you're trying. Whatever you give him, that's perfectly fine with him. God says, really, try that with your landlord. Try that with your boss this week at work. Am I less? Verse 14, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now, if you've been around King's Cross for any length of time, you've been in church for any length of time, you might say, look, you tell us every week that Jesus has died in our place for our sins as our substitute. We know that the gospel tells us that because in his death, he paid the full price that God demanded for the sins of all those who would ever turn to him in repentance and faith. We don't have to make literal sacrifices anymore. Yes and amen, but surely we can be just as guilty of half-hearted worship. Surely we can be just as guilty of giving God the leftovers of our time, of our money of our emotions of our worship I mean are we so much greater than the Israelites in 400 BC that somehow the Word of God doesn't apply to us you know I usually I sit down front during worship services mainly because I just practically you know it's less intrusive for me to get to stage but every now and then. You know, I've got something to do in between services or I'm running around a little bit and every now and then I stand kind of in the back and I'm looking over our worship. And can I tell you that sometimes that's a bit disheartening to me? Not all the time, but sometimes. Because some of you all in worship, you just like... And I know it was mainly men, right? I know that's not my personality you don't understand you don't try to get me to, I just't I don't want people looking at me uh, I, I'm very I'm very shy I'm not an animated person okay but football started yesterday <laughs> right so on Saturdays our voices are raised and we're physically excited we don't care who sees or knows about us because there are 11 19 year olds on a football field with our favorite jersey on but the great king of the nations the great Lord of hosts half-hearted worship. God says, that's all I'm worth to you. You get jazzed up at sandstorm and tiger rag. Not so much to worship songs that extol the virtue of my love and my sacrifice of my son. And he says, you know, part of the problem in Malachi 1 and 2 is God rebukes the priests for putting up with it. And telling the people that it's okay. This is a part of the problem is what the people are bringing. The other part is you're telling them it's okay. It says in verse 10, he's speaking to the priests, the professional religious dudes. He says in verse 10, Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. And, like, I'll be honest with you. This is why a lot of guys that do what I do just don't preach the minor prophets. Because it's not super encouraging. You're the hero. good. For, like, it, it's hard to read through these things. But it's the word of the Lord to his people. They weren't off worshiping pagan gods in pagan temples, they were just kind of content to whatever in his temple. And he says, I'm not having that. I wish you'd just shut the doors and not even go. And on top of that, the people who are supposed to be leading you are telling you it's okay. Are we so different? Does the God of then not also the God of now, does he not deserve our best? Does he not demand our best rather than our leftovers? And and he pairs it with this related charge in chapter 3 where he moves from saying, you know, you're just giving me kind of of, of not your best. And then he, he says, you're not even giving me your all. Kind of escalates it. Malachi 3, 8 through 10. Will a man rob God and yet you're robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. We talk about giving every week, don't we? Let me tell you one reason why we do that. Because we're just not going to pastor a church full of people who rob God. We're not going to do it. That's not the kind of church we're going to be. And we don't talk to you about percentages necessarily or dollar amounts. We talk to you about generosity, right? Josh has already done that. This morning, and we try as best as we can. Joshua is a good example of this. This morning, we try to link it to the way that God's working through you at King's Cross to be a blessing to our community. We try to link it um, sometimes to direct passages that talk to us about generosity. We we try to consistently pray virtually every week that as a church, God would make us a generous church. But hear me, we don't talk about that. Like it's not about the money. That's not about money, because what's generous for me might not be generous for you. What's generous for you might not even be attainable for me. That's not about money. That's about the posture of a heart towards the great king, the Lord of hosts. What's the posture of our heart towards him? And what he's saying to his people through the prophet Malachi is, look, like if you see the church as a place where you come to get where you come to take. So I'm going to go to church and I'm going to get something I need, spiritually or relationally, emotionally, inspirationally, whatever it might be. He said, if that's the posture of your heart, be careful, use caution, that you don't drift to a place where you're robbing God. Because you feel like, ah, it's going to be fine. They don't need me, they don't need my time. They don't need my gifts, they don't need my talents, they don't need my money, it's fine. Church can going to be fine, God's going to be fine. God says to Malachi, it's not fine. It's not fine. It's not fine for you to think that, and it's not fine for me to tell you it's okay to think that. brings this third pair of charges. Numbers 3 and 4, they're kind of in concentric circles, they're, they're paired. Numbers 3 and 4 talk about how people treat one another. When everybody was living in exile in Babylon on the banks of the Kibar Canal, it was real easy to be all in it together. Fair? Like When people are in the middle of crisis, that's uniting. I I said kind of off the cuff in the first service, we were a very united nation on September 12th. And now, what I said was, 11 or 12 years later, not so much. And one of our young guys said, what year is it? (laughs) 22 years later, that's kind of past, right? Not as united as we were that day. Well, you know, temple's back in order. Sacrifice is happening again. Walls are rebuilt. City's back together. Things have calmed down. Life is kind of back to something like normal in Jerusalem. And what's happened is these sins of partiality that are so blatantly against God's law and his instruction to his people, well, those are back to In chapter 2, verses 10 and 12, God condemns marrying pagans, people who worship to other gods. His people will not stop doing it. How many times does that come up in our study of the scriptures? Just again and again, he keeps saying to them, stop marrying people who worship other gods, because eventually you're going to start worshiping their gods just won't stop doing it. Verses 13 to 16, he condemns divorce on the grounds of just simply not loving your wife. Well, you know, I just fell out of love. He condemns this kind of approach to, like what we might call in our day, a no-fault divorce. Well, that just didn't work out. The issue in both, the way that people are handling marriage, is what it is that that says about God. And so he says in verse 14 and 15, of chapter 2. The Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. Did God not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And so what he says is, look, when you cheapen marriage, you cheapen the God of marriage. When you cheapen the covenant of marriage, you cheapen the God of the covenant. And so like just practically speaking, directly out of Malachi 2. Can I just encourage you, if you're Christian and single, don't even consider being married to someone who's not a believer. That's a clear teaching of Scripture, Old Testament and New. Do not marry someone who's not a Christian. There's just no way around it. Because what does it say about God? Likewise, if you're Christian and married... Like, please hear the clear teaching of Scripture, both Old Testament and New. Do not even consider divorcing your spouse just because you're not in love anymore. I'm just not happy. Now, are there legitimate biblical reasons for divorce? Yes. That's a different sermon. Old Testament and New, yes, there are. There are times and places for that. But I'm just not happy is not on the list. I just don't love you anymore. That's not on the list. And so we want to hold marriage in honor. And God's saying, look, I'm looking down on my people. They don't have any reverence or respect for the covenant of marriage. So, I mean, if you're struggling with one of those things, come talk to us. Come talk to one of our pastors. We will walk alongside you and counsel you or get you connected to professional counseling. Let's relentlessly pursue a flourishing, healthy, gospel-centered reconciliation and marriage before we ever even think about one of them being ended, just because I'm ready for something new. The companion charge to being okay with, you know, kind of holding marriage lightly is being okay with injustice the lack of holding marriage in honor is paired with, with a lack of justice among the people. He says this in Malachi 3.5. I will draw near to you for judgment and I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Talking to his people, and he says, "Look, I, I'm going to be—I'll be a witness against you. Against who? Sorcerers? Wow, nobody's a sorcerer anymore. Well, there was an article a week or two ago about the medium on Daniel Island. Article in the newspaper. Right? Some of you just like to dabble a little bit in the occult, right? just here and there a little bit. It's kind of fun, you know. A little bit of voodoo here and there. Who's it going to hurt?" <laughs> I'm not talking about we got to cancel trunk or treat. Don't hear that. You know, what I'm, I'm talking about Like serious little tarot card here and there. He says, you know, I'm going to be a, a witness against adulterers. Remember that trip to Vegas? That <laughs> happens in Vegas, stays in Vegas, baby. We can laugh about that weekend, can't we? Woo! little porn stash little private social media account so you can DM your high school boyfriend or girlfriend. Nobody has to know. It's just between us. It's like a hurting thing, is it? Okay, swear falsely. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't? Oppress hired workers in their wages. It's my business. Why should I hire somebody for $15 an hour if they're willing to work for 12 That's not my fault. That's their fault. They ought to work a little bit harder. They get a better job. I did. I pulled myself up. Why can't they pull themselves up? I'm talking about livable wage, livable wage. That's not a spiritual issue. Okay. Widows and the fatherless. Out of sight, out of mind. I mean, I feel bad. I do. I got my own family to take care of. I can't deal with, like, their family needs to take care of that. I, I just don't have... The space you don't understand, okay? Thrust aside the sojourner. You know what sojourner means? Immigrant. Means immigrant. Just man, golly, get out of here, okay? Aren't you glad we don't struggle with these things anymore? Isn't the Old Testament so unrelatable? I just, I just can't even see how that could possibly relate to our life. Malachi is talking to a people whose crisis had passed, whose economy had stabilized. They went to worship. I mean, it was a little stale, but they were there. They became accustomed to hearing the word of God through his prophets. They're just kind of in between. Just kind of Waiting. And they're going to be for another 400 years. That's how long it's going to take to turn the page from Malachi to Matthew. That's how long it's going to take for the prophetic voice of Malachi to pass the baton to the prophetic voice of John the Baptist. 400 years is a lot of waiting. But can we be honest that it's been 2,000 years since Jesus died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended? 2,000 years since he promised that he was going to return to wipe every tear, to make all things new again, to usher in the kingdom of God fully, to dwell with his people forever. 2,000 years is a long time to wait. How do we live between here and there? Like, how do we wait well? How do we not find ourselves kicking life into neutral and just kind of drifting through it, hands off the wheel, everything will be okay? Closing words of the Old Testament. It's the final words of God to his people before he launches them out into this season of waiting, of living in between here and there. Malachi 4, 4 4-6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, his statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that is 400 years of silence. How do we wait well? Three, just quickly, encouragements for us as we live as those people who live between the first and second coming of Christ. Three encouragements to us. First, obey the law of the Lord. Obey the law of the Lord. Verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded. Do you obey the law of the Lord? Jesus says in John fourteen fifteen: If you love me, You will keep my commandments. You don't have to have been to seminary to know how to apply that to your life. So, well, how do we interpret that? Obey the law of the Lord. Sometimes you just have to not overthink it. Second, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Verse five, behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And look, there's a lot in that prophetic promise. We're gonna look at that with a little more awe and wonder in the weeks ahead because next week we're gonna turn the page and we're gonna be in the New Testament. But for now, at the most basic level, it's enough to see that God sent messengers to speak on his behalf to his people. Do you hear the word of the Lord? Do you read your Bible on your own, on a regular basis? So I don't really know how to do that. Well, grab one of the devotional plans on the table on your way out. Next week starts a new chapter in our year-long study of the Bible. The devotional plan starts fresh tomorrow. If you'll read it, very short passages. If you don't know where to start, that's the best place you can start. Do you set to intake the Word of God on your own? Are you committed to sitting under gospel-centered preaching in this or another gospel-centered church on a regular basis. And by regular, I mean like weekly, barring some vacation and sickness here and there. I mean, life happens a little bit. That's okay, you know. But regularly sitting under, do you hear the word of what you can't obey what you haven't heard. Amen? Amen? Hear the word of the Lord. Third, receive the salvation of the Lord. Receive the salvation of the Lord. Verse 6, God says, "I'm, I'm sending one who will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And fathers there, I think, refers... Yes, to a restoration of right social order that was decaying in the way that they were looking at families and marriage. And they said, yes, it is that. But more than that, it's a restoration of right spiritual order. What God is saying is, I'm going to send one who's going to turn the hearts of my children back to their heavenly father. There is one coming whose coming is going to bring with it a great returning, a great turn. There is one coming who will perfectly obey my law. There is one coming who will not only preach the word of the Lord, but who will be the word of the Lord in flesh. There is one coming who will make it possible for all who repent of their sin and turn to him in faith to receive the salvation of the Lord by his grace. But unlike Israel, we don't have to wait to know who that coming one is. We know that it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And what we're going to see starting next week is how His life and ministry perfectly fulfill all of these things that we've been studying together over the last eight months. So I hope you're committed to being here for that. God, I just encourage you that if you're not a Christian yet, our prayer for you in the weeks and months ahead is that you will come to not only know, but to understand, to, to fear, to obey, to love the Lord, that you will receive his salvation for the first time. For those of us who have already done that, I pray that, that we would be committed as individuals and as a church to hearing and obeying the word of the Lord together. to to hearing and obeying while we wait for his return. Let's pray. Father, so often when we come to your word, we're encouraged and comforted. We're built up. You breathe joy into our lives. You sing over us. And we're thankful for that, but we're also thankful that there are times when your word confronts us and convicts us. It corrects us. It goads us to staying on the right path. It's a narrow one. We need your help. Would you help us to not despise corrective words, but to rejoice in them? Because you've told us that you discipline those you love. Would you help us to be a church that doesn't shy away from some of the harder teachings of Scripture, but embraces them knowing that there is one who has obeyed you perfectly on our behalf, who died that we might live. To help us to receive, but also to walk in the fullness of your salvation, that you might be glorified through our lives and our church. In Christ's name, amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.